Well, we are uh, in a series right now called At the Movies, and kind of what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been looking at some of the truths or some of the themes that we see in movies, and we've kind of been bringing those, those themes, those truths uh, here into the church, and we're kind of saying, oh, what does the Bible have to say about these truths and these themes that we see in the movies? And tonight's movie is Toy Story 2 which was released in 1999. Now, I have right here, before we watch our clip, I have uh, a movie uh, lover's extraordinaire package. We have candy, we have a Fandango gift card, and we've got popcorn. If you can manage to pop this popcorn in an auditorium this cold, you will have an invention worth millions. Until you figure that out, though, um, here's the trivia question, okay? And we're in church, so no using your smartphones, okay? I told you what year Toy Story 2 came out. What year did Toy Story 1 come out? 95. Who said 95? All right, come on down. Process of elimination guessing. What's your name? I'm Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Great to have you here. There you go. Enjoy that. Okay, so give Daniel a hand. All right, so we're going to watch a clip from Toy Story 2 here, and then I'm going to come out, and we're going to kind of unpack uh, one of the themes that we see in this clip. So the uh, story in that second film is uh, centers around Woody. He's, he ends up at a garage sale. He's not supposed to be there, and Al from Al's Toy Barn steals him, and he's going to sell Woody as part of Woody's Roundup to a toy museum in Japan. And you heard it there. Uh, Woody actually is at a place now where he wants to go. And you see what happens is as the movie uh, progresses, at first Woody is devastated because he wants to get back home to Andy. He wants to experience uh, the joy and the fun that comes from knowing that Andy loves him and that Woody is one of Andy's favorite toys. But as the movie goes on, you start to see Woody have some doubts. He starts to doubt whether or not when he goes back, if things will be the same. And you heard it there in that scene. You heard him say to Buzz, how much longer? One more rip and that's it. See, despite the fact that that Woody had been Andy's favorite toy for most of Andy's life, Woody had begun to have doubts. Despite the fact that Andy had, had played with Woody and that he had experienced the joy of that, he's starting to doubt whether or not things are going to be the same. And for some of us, that's our relationship with God. Despite the fact that he's come through for us time and time again, despite the fact that he's shown his love and care for us in more ways than we can even begin to count, there's something in us that when we face a certain set of circumstances, when something happens that we weren't expecting, when, when something happens that we didn't want to happen, we begin to experience doubt. And tonight, as we kind of continue in this series at the movies, we're going to talk about the relationship between faith and doubt. And when you talk about a, a subject like faith and doubt, this is one of those subjects that really it touches everyone regardless of where you might fall on the spectrum of faith. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. And one of the reasons you're not a Christian is because you've got some doubts. You've got some questions, and they're good questions. Questions about, can, you know, is the Bible really trustworthy? Did Jesus really come and die for my sins? Did he really rise again? You've got some good 
questions and you've got some doubts. And for you, one of the reasons you haven't crossed the line of faith and come to a place where you've trusted in Jesus, where you've placed your faith in his death and resurrection as the payment for your sins is because you've got some doubts. Now, others of you, maybe you kind of grew up in a Christian home or you grew up uh, a Christian. You had a relationship with Jesus, but then you went off to college In your freshman year, you had an English teacher. You had a philosophy professor. And he or she was bright, articulate, one of the smartest people you've ever met. And they had all these incredible questions and insights about the Bible that you had never heard, you'd never even thought of. And all of a sudden, you're being told for the first time in your life that the Bible is a book filled with inconsistencies that there's all kinds of factual errors in the Bible. And although none of those inconsistencies or errors were ever explicitly mentioned, or maybe they were explicitly mentioned, but they weren't given the same level of scrutiny as the other literature you studied in class, it was enough to sow the seeds of doubt in your mind. It was enough to make you question. And you began to think back to those times in your life when you were younger, And maybe a doubt or a question would pop up and someone would tell you, well, you gotta just have faith. You gotta just believe. They didn't encourage you to wrestle with those doubts. They didn't encourage you to to deal with those questions. They just kinda brushed them aside. Others of you, maybe you're here and, and you're a Christian and for the most part, things have gone pretty well in your life. But suddenly you find yourself in a situation where circumstances have changed. Because of the emotions of the moment, because of what's going on in your life right now, you're starting to doubt in ways that you've never doubted before. Maybe you're doubting everything. You're questioning everything. Or maybe you're not questioning the historical aspects of your faith. Maybe you still believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again. Maybe you still believe that at some level God loves you, but If you're honest, you'd say, you know what? I'm facing these circumstances right now and I'm just not sure that God's gonna come through for me. I've got doubts. I've got doubts about what it means when people say that God is good. I've got some questions that I'm wrestling with. Questions that are starting to make me rethink everything I thought I believed. Maybe you're here and you're one of the few people that has yet to experience doubt. And if that's the case, you will. Because doubt is a universal experience. Doubt reaches up and grabs all of us. And at some point, we will be faced with a situation or circumstances where we are going to have to wrestle with doubt and the tension between doubt and faith and what is the interplay between those two. And the strange thing about doubt is that none of us decide we're gonna do it. We don't wake up one day and say, you know, My life would be so much easier if I had more doubt. If I had more questions about God, that if I started to ask questions about everything I've ever believed, that if I started to doubt God's love and care and provision for me, that would make my life so much better. None of us do that, and yet, all of us struggle with doubt from time to time. And at first, it may seem like that's actually a bad thing. Because as Christians, we've been told that we're to have faith and that we're to have trust and confidence in our Heavenly Father, and all of that is true. But then we look at our experiences, we look at the doubts, we look at the questions, and we start to feel like maybe our faith is second rate. We start to maybe feel a little guilty. We start to wonder, what's wrong with me? Why am I doubting? Why am I asking questions? 
But here's the good news, and this is why it's so important that we talk about this tonight. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Let me say that again. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. In fact, doubt is oftentimes the very thing that God uses to fuel your faith. Doubt is oftentimes the very thing that God uses to pull you into a closer, deeper, more intimate relationship with him. See, when it comes to doubt, it's all about the way we approach it. And we're going to see that tonight uh, in an encounter that Jesus has with a father. And this father is at his wit's end. He's tried everything. And he comes to Jesus and he has this moment right there before Jesus where he's confronted with the fact that on the one hand he has faith, he wants to have faith, and on the other hand he has doubt. And he has to deal with this tension between faith and doubt. And this encounter is, we see this in, in Mark chapter 9. Mark is one of the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They tell the story of the life of Jesus from his birth through his death and resurrection. And most scholars believe that Mark was written um, by a guy who was a companion of the apostle Peter. And Peter was an eyewitness to the story that we're going to read about here tonight. In fact, right before this, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus had been up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he had been transfigured before them. His clothes had become dazzling white. It was this kind of incredible, almost mystical, uh, supernatural experience. Moses and Elijah had been there. And so they had been up on the mountain, and then they come back down the mountain from that and the rest of the disciples and the crowd are down there with this father. And this is what we find. Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick this up starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowds answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my dry sense of humor. I don't know, okay? The text doesn't tell us this. This is just me. But in this moment, here's this boy. He's having what amounts to a grand mal seizure. He's laying on the ground. He's rigid. He's grinding his teeth. The crowd's looking for him to do something. They're wondering, is this it? Is this going to be the last time? And it's as if Jesus just kind of casually says, so, how long has this been happening? Now, I'm a father. And if I'm the father in this story, in this moment, I'm going, are you serious? Don't you see what needs to happen? I've heard about what you're capable of. I've heard that you're a great miracle worker. And here you are, you're asking me how long this has been happening to him. It doesn't matter how long it's been happening to him. Jesus, I need you to do something. That's what I'd be thinking. But Jesus, as he so often does, has a brilliant reason for asking this question. Because what he's about to do is surface in the Father 
something that the father may or may not even realize is going on inside of him. See, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been going on? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you hear the doubt in his voice? If you can do anything. Now, if this father thought that Jesus was completely incapable of doing anything, he wouldn't have bothered bringing his son to him in the first place. But there's something inside of him that has heard about Jesus. He's heard about this teacher, this miracle worker, who's even able to cast out demons. And although there's a part of this father that believes, there's also a part of him that doubts whether or not Jesus will actually do something for him. Do you see the tension between faith and doubt? And so Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. In other words, I see your doubt. If you can, do you know who I am? Have you not heard about me? See, I see your doubt and I'm calling it out. But notice, notice that Jesus does not rebuke the Father. He doesn't say, how dare you question me? Instead, he invites the Father to do something even in the midst of his doubt. He invites him to believe. And see, what we see here is that when it comes to doubt and faith and the relationship between the two, what makes all the difference is the way we approach our doubt. There's really two ways to approach our doubt. We can approach our doubt with arrogance or we can approach our doubt with humility. Arrogance says, God, I need you to do something for me. I need you to come through and I need you to do it exactly this way. And you know, if you don't come through and you don't do it exactly the way I think you ought to in the timing that I think you ought to do it in, then I'm gonna question you. I'm gonna wonder whether you really love me. See, arrogant doubt says I know best. But humble doubt comes at it from the other angle. Humble doubt says, God, I know that, that I'm finite and you're not. I know that, that I'm imperfect and you're not but I'm just being honest. Because of the emotion of my situation, because of what's going on inside of me, because of the circumstances in which I find myself, I want to believe, but God, there's just something in me that doubts. Do you see the difference between the two? One says, I know best, and it pushes us away from our heavenly Father. The other one says, God, despite what I see, you know best, and it pulls us towards our heavenly Father and actually can become the fuel for our faith and something that grows and deepens our trust in him. So here's this father, and he has a choice to make. How's he going to approach his doubt? What's he going to do? How's he going to deal with it? And for some of you here tonight, what we're about to read, this is for you. Because you are facing circumstances in your life that are causing you to doubt. And what this man says might be the very thing that you need to say here tonight. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out. That's a verb. It's like a, almost a guttural cry. The cry of someone who almost can't verbalize what they're expressing. He cried out 
and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe that you can heal my son. But help the part of me that doubts whether or not you can and will heal my son. And see, some of you are facing circumstances right now where tonight the most powerful thing you could do is to pray, I believe, God. Help my unbelief. I believe that you're good, but I'm having a hard time seeing it right now. God, I believe that you're able to care for me, but I'm just not sure that you will. In all honesty, I'm not sure that you'll come through for me that you'll take care of us financially. I'm not sure that you'll come through and you'll provide a job. I'm not sure that you'll care for my prodigal son or daughter. I'm not sure, God, that you'll put my marriage back together. My marriage has fallen apart and I'm not sure that there's anything I can do and I feel like giving up and God, I'm not sure that you'll be enough to sustain me in these difficult times. God, I believe, but at the same time, help my unbelief. Friends, that is a powerful prayer. Because when we approach our doubts, not from a position of how do I get rid of this, but from a position of how do I allow God to use this, that's when our faith begins to grow. That's when our faith begins to enlarge. And so here's this father. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus responds, verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up and he arose. See, in in spite of the fact that the father had doubts, Jesus intervened and healed his son. And in doing so, we learn a very important truth, one that has the potential to change our lives and the way we view the relationship between faith and doubt. Here's the truth we see in this story, that the object of your faith is more important than the quality of your faith. The object of your faith is more important than the quality of your faith. Jesus, the object of your faith, is not looking for perfect faith. He's not looking for faith that says, God, I'm gonna try really hard to get rid of my doubts and try really hard to just believe more in you and I'm gonna pull myself up and I'm gonna do some good works and I'm gonna hope that you will come through for me. It's some sort of religious system. That's not what Jesus is looking for. The faith that Jesus is looking for is faith that comes to him in honesty and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. The object of your faith is more important than the quality of your faith. And when the object of your faith is a resurrected savior, you can be confident that even in the midst of your doubt, God is willing and able to intervene. He's willing and able to care for you. And he's willing and able to sustain your faith. So the question then becomes, what do we do with this? As we get ready to leave here in a little bit and we head off into our weeks and we face our doubts and we have questions, what do we do with them? How should we 
approach them. And I think it really kind of depends on where you're at in that faith journey and in the spectrum of faith, how you approach this. For some of you here tonight, you're not a Christian, and this is really good news because you've got doubts. You've got questions, and you've been thinking in your mind that you had to deal with your doubts and get all your questions answered before you could cross the line of faith. But as we see here tonight, the object of your faith is more important than the quality of your faith. And see, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again for your sins, that he is the only way for you to be right with God, then you can plant a flag in the ground and say, you know what? From this point forward, I'm gonna begin to trust Jesus. I'm gonna repent of my sin. I'm gonna turn in faith to Jesus. I'm gonna begin to trust him and I'm gonna begin to follow him and I'm gonna bring my questions and I'm gonna bring my doubts along the way. See, for some of you, this is really good news. For others of you, maybe you're not a Christian and this is bad news because your doubts and your questions, those are the things that you have been using all this time to keep people who talk to you about faith and about coming to faith, to keep them at arm's length and to keep them at bay. You've been hiding behind it. That's your trump card. Yeah, well, what about? Well, I've got some questions. Well, I've got some doubts. Listen, I've been a Christian now for for 25 years. I grew up going to church. I grew up reading the Bible. I grew up studying the Bible. I have four years of graduate level theological training. And I'm telling you, there isn't a week that goes by where I don't in some capacity doubt God. Some weeks, there isn't a day that goes by. Some days, there isn't an hour that goes by where I don't doubt God and question God and wonder in deep ways. If I could just be frank, some of you, you're approaching your doubts and questions from that position of arrogance. And you'd never say this out loud, but but what you're thinking in your mind is, I know better than God. And when God can answer my questions, and deal with my doubts in a way that's satisfactory to me, then maybe I'll listen. But I'm pleading with you to rethink that, to come at this from a position of humility. Because if you will do that, if you will say, you know what? Maybe I'm not smarter than the all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe who's sovereign. If you will have a little humility and come at it from that way and say, you know what? I've got serious questions. I've got serious doubts, but I'm going to take that first step of faith. I'm going to begin to trust in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection in my place. I believe that God will actually, in time, use your questions and doubts to draw you closer to him. In fact, some of the people who have made the biggest impact as Christians in the world, are people who first had serious doubts and serious questions. But in time, they finally said, I'm gonna take that first step, even though I've still got all these doubts and I've still got all these questions. And if that's where you're at tonight, then I would plead with you to reconsider your position. Stop using your doubts and questions as a smokescreen and just step forward and be honest. If you'll do that, God will honor that and use that. 
Now, others of you, maybe you're here and, and you are a Christian, but because of what's going on in your life, you've got some questions, you've got some doubts, you've got some struggles. And I think for you tonight, what you need to do is, is simply the same thing this father did. To pray, to say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe you're good, God, but because of my circumstances, because of the emotion in which I find myself, I'm just not able to see it. I believe, but would you help my unbelief? And God will do that. God will grow your faith. Now, in order for for your doubt to fuel your faith, you got to allow for the possibility that God is God and we're not. And what you think God maybe should do may not be what, in fact, he does. See, these verses here tonight are not a promise. They're not a guarantee that if we have faith, even in the midst of doubt, that God is going to come through and do exactly what we want him to do. See, God is sovereign, meaning he is in control. He's all-knowing. He's the one who is all-wise, not us. And sometimes what we think is best for us is not what he thinks is best for us. And he knows better than we do. And that's part of what it means to have uh, humility with our doubt. Is to allow for the possibility that the things we're questioning and the things that are causing us to doubt, that we are not able to see them in full. That God actually knows best. We've not been promised that our life will be pain-free and that it'll be easy, and that if we just have enough faith, God will bless us. What we have been promised, though, is something better. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll read this, and then we'll close. Starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We serve a resurrected Savior who knows what it's like to be tempted in every respect. He knows what it's like to live in a world that's filled with doubts and questions. But you see, the object of our faith is more important than the quality of our faith. And when the object of our faith is a resurrected Savior, one who did not give up and give in when he faced temptation, then we can have confidence knowing that because of Jesus, because he lived the life that we couldn't live, because he died the death we should have died, because he rose in power, and because he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, we can have confidence that we will find grace and mercy in our time of need. We can have confidence knowing that even in the midst of deep doubt, that our faith, is not in vain.